there and welcome to Meet Me in the Middle, the podcast that seeks out the middle ground, generally, as well as specifically. My name is Annika Buckle. And my name is Jenny Omani. And if you are enjoying this podcast, we would really love for you to go give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on and share with a friend. Stuff like that really means many things to us. Sharing is caring. Thank you. <laughs> um, so as we kind of kick off today's conversation, um, this we just kind of want to address this before we dive in today, because one of the things that we love to have is conversation around nuanced topics. And as me- the ethos of this podcast and many of our conversations come out of you know, the nine minute voice memo conversations that we share with each other, um, we kind of realize that there may be topics a little bit outside of, you know, traditional quote unquote wellness. Um, and one of the things that we have been voice memoing each other a lot lately has to do with generally women's place in society. So we're going to talk in a little bit more detail about that today, because if we're talking about it, probably you want to hear about it. (laughs) Or maybe you're talking about it too. And you don't realize that's what you're talking about. Exactly. So (laughs) here we go. (laughs) Um, In the conversation that kicked this off, we were talking uh, around that statistic that you've probably seen, you know, being a mom is the equivalent of two and a half jobs. I wanted to dig into kind of what that looked like, because of course I did. Um, And I'll walk you through what they, you know, say is the breakdown of that in a minute. Um, Just generally I want to hop on my soapbox for a minute just to give some context. Um, Unpaid care work is fundamentally invisible. It is radically undervalued. It is treated as non-work. It is an annoyance or a frustration if it's even acknowledged at all, but it is truly the foundation of a functioning society. This kind of care work perpetuates gender inequalities. It fuels the sexist economic system. Really, it continues to exploit labor of women and girls continues to accumulate wealth and power into the hands of a very rich few. Um, And while we're speaking specifically today about, you know, kind of the Canadian and American experience, it's important to remember that this conversation is even more relevant in lower income countries, especially in areas that struggle for resources, you know, in a community where somebody has to walk two hours to get water and then bring that back who does that typically fall to? It falls to women and girls. So there's a little bit of context and just a reminder that what we'll be speaking about today isn't necessarily the global context, but that that is also very important here. So what is this two and a half jobs of motherhood breakdown into? So there are a few different numbers, but for the sake of consistency, I'm using the numbers I found on Insure because I really love that it's just a very clear breakdown, including updated 2022 numbers, which as Jenny and I have discussed in our side conversations, it's actually really hard to find updated numbers and statistics for things um, post-pandemic, especially because a lot of those resources just went other places. (laughs) Yay for the return of data. (laughs) (laughs) Non-medically focused data, population data that looks at factors other than infection rates. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. Um, so this essentially, you know, gives a base rate and then an overtime, keeping in mind, this is an, in theory, you know, a 90 to 100 hour work week. This is 14 hours a day, seven days a week. 
Um, assuming that uh, stay-at-home mom, they assign a base of $36,000 plus almost an additional $80,000 in overtime with moms that work outside the home earning an additional almost $24,000 in overtime, which I could dissect, but I won't today. <laughs> Um, and what I find really interesting, and this is, I think, kind of the crux of this number, um, is that there are so many pieces that become invisible labor inside of this. So this is accounting, it's chauffeuring, it's childcare work, it's cooking. Those are the things I think, you know, we think about when we think about unpaid labor in the home, but it's also hairdresser. It's also judicial worker, including judge. If you have multiple children, you probably can identify with that. (laughs) (laughs) It's, you know, landscaping, it's laundry, it's licensed practical and vocational nursing. I mean, you know, (laughs) putting on a bandaid is not the same as the work that Jenny does in the ICU, but that is labor that goes unpaid and unacknowledged. It's house cleaning, it's convention and meeting planning, it's mental health counseling, it's other teaching and instructing, it's personal care aids. I also really love, this is my favorite, private detective and investigator. (laughs) In case case anybody's wondering, that's um, five hours a week for eight weeks of the year. So that's... (laughs) I love that they quantitated that. But it's also... Once your kids get to a certain age, you end up doing it for other people's kids too, as they do for my kids. You know what I mean? Like you have other kids that come over, you end up doing that for them. We were at a cheer competition on the weekend and someone, one of the girls showed up with like a low ponytail. It's supposed to be a high ponytail. So (laughs) I, you know what I mean? Like you better believe I did another ponytail, right? Like you, it's, 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 it's banned so much more as your kids get older. Which is interesting because I don't know about you, Annika, but when my kids were little, people or the way things were framed to me was that, and my my youngest is three, so she's still little, was that um, basically it gets sort of easier as they get older. And it does in like a predictability way, I suppose. But I actually think as my kids get older, they need me more than, you know, like they did when I was, they were three. Well, and I think this is kind of one of the other things that becomes invisible, right? Is, you know, nobody's quantifying that the the time and prowess it took you to be able to do that high ponytail. But without that, you know, and I mean, it's funny to talk about it like that, but without that, it it becomes hard for your daughter to be successful in her cheer competition that bleeds over into oh, yeah. all kinds of other things. But nobody's acknowledging that that's actually work when the reality is, it is. We if live in a capitalist never done system. Dance or cheer hair. You have no idea how much work it is. But we There's live like in a ca- capitalist three brushes system that wants special to hairspray. See capitalism. Three hairbrushes. Right. Right. It wants to exploit everything, and it very, rarely doesn't want to have to pay out because there is no, you know, monetary value on you being able to do that ponytail. <laughs> no, no. But the emotional toll on not having your mom do your hair for a competition (laughs) right totally Isla would probably be panicky if I could if Dave was on hair duty she'd be panicking like she'd be like we there'd probably be one other mom that she would let do her hair so we'd have to find like that mom well and I think this is where you know we've and we'll dive into way more detail about this shortly but like 
we've able we've been able to move beyond the idea that like there isn't something intrinsic about you that makes you better at doing hair that Dave doesn't have because of his chromosomes. <laughs> totally. Right? We've moved beyond that idea, but well where we haven't moved beyond is that division of labor. And I think actually on that note, even in childless couples, the bulk of homemaking duties fall to women and I think in some ways are even more invisible because it's like well you don't even have kids. Mm, yeah, but everybody yeah. still has to live here. <laughs> yeah. And I think there'd be just so much more dismissal and less validation. So yeah, could arguably feel, you know, just as heavy as it does, you know, if you're doing it for other little humans. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So that's just a little summary of kind of that. And I think it's really relevant because that's, you know, that's where we are now. That's what that looks like. Um, but let's talk a little bit about, you know, kind of how we got here and, and, and I'm actually really excited, um, to have this conversation because this is my jam, this stuff. So, <laughs> yeah. And one thing that Annika and I voice memoed about, by the way, Lee isn't here today because she has a sick household because invisible work, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's Case actually, point. it's too, it's too perfect for our it's topic. It's too perfect it? time. I know. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that we've talked about is actually how how many fake rules we seem to live by now. And the thing that I sort of was thinking was like, oh, you know what's funny is those were real rules. Like if you go back to Victorian England or older society, you know, westernized societies, the, there were like literal rules that people followed, that society followed in terms of keeping people in their proper class structure and all of that stuff, how you addressed people, what you wore, all of those things were like rules. Whereas we've lost a lot of the concreteness of the rules, but the, the, um, the essence of them yeah, the is living real strong, <laughs> really, really strong. Um, but when we look at this information, it really comes down to, um, employment rates and women working. This is a relatively new concept in the history of time. It's really just been, I mean, if you think about it, when women could vote, like we're looking at a blip in time that women's rights has really kind of vamped up. And while we specifically today aren't speaking about women's rights in the term, in like the sense that the suffragettes were, um, we're speaking from it in a very different context. Like we're happily married. We don't hate men. We're not burning bras. Like feminism now, if you want to call it that, women's equity, women's um, societal roles, it's always sort of there. It just sort of shapeshifts as we as we go through time and as we go through cultural experience. But if we look back in 1900, 18.3% um, of women in Canada and the US uh, worked outside of the house. This is definitely going to be um, people from lower income environments. In fact, it was considered very unladylike for women to work uh, if they were of any class or middle or upper class. So it was a huge faux pas. So these are women working who um, were either destitute or quite close to being destitute in order to provide and eat, they were working. So the concept of why women work has definitely shifted over time. But just as a reference point in 1900, 18.3% of women were working. Um, and I don't have an age group for that. Now, modern stats, we define what that means. Um, and in modern day, we use 15 and older uh, for people, for women that are working. 
Um, and there were no uh, union safety rules, that sort of stuff then. So there's probably in this group of women that they're talking about, you're probably talking about um, like kids too, to be honest. Mm-hmm. In 1914 though, um, in World War One. Um, so keep in mind, the U.S. was not in the war then. So at the start of the First World War, 23.6% of women in the States were employed. So up a bit from 1900, but not a huge amount. Um, the U.S. enters the war in 1917. And by 1918, 37.7 to 47.7% of women are now employed. So, well, and this is that's like in a this, year. <laughs> and this is really interesting, right? Because that, you know, 20 whatever percent pre-war, I mean, like black women have always worked in the U.S. It just used to be for free as slaves, but Mm -hmm. you know, there wasn't, I think that's also kind of part of what then leads to that very classist split of like, it's not respectable if you're a woman to be working until we have this shift where society is like, oh, actually we're fucked if you guys don't work. So you want to snap it up? (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, the marketing that had to go in to place to convince women to work, Mm -hmm. right? Um, A lot of war propaganda, I mean, propaganda goes both ways. (laughs) It's actually really interesting if you look at wartime propaganda and, you know, things that um, governments have done to keep spirits up and whatnot. And one of the things they had to do was uh, encourage women to work where they had been previously told that they absolutely could not work. So we, within one year of the U.S. joining the war, you see the employment rate go from 24-ish percent to up to 48%. So we've completely, we've doubled the women in the workforce. Um, and a lot of that work was in manufacturing and agriculture. If you're at war, you need to be able to uh, feed your civilians and you need to be able to make ammunition because mm-hmm. wars are won based on who can produce the most ammunition. A lot of it is, I mean, why do you think so many nations are fueling um, Ukraine right now with mm-hmm. ammunition and weapons is because that's what wins wars. So we knew this, you know, a hundred years ago, and that's where the focus in the workforce went, uh, manufacturing and agri- agriculture. Um, there was a little bit of work on the front, not a lot, nurses, doctors, ambulance drivers, translators, but, um, for the most part, these women were all working within, um, munitions and agricultural work in the first world war. Now, interestingly, so going into the second world war, like, can we just have a moment for these people that lived through like the Spanish flu, the first world war and the second world war, like, and the depression, like, I mean, it, shitty decades. It puts our like unprecedented times of the 2020s into perspective a little bit. Right. Well, most historians would tell you that like, this is genuinely not the most unprecedented history we've faced. <laughs> it just feels like it. Cause we're in it because we're in it. We're not reading about it in a book. Yeah. Um, any guess, Annika, what the employment rate in 1939 is going into oh the second God. world war. So we ended around 48%. Like I can't even guess. Yeah, you can. Like, it went right back to where it was before. Ah! The world war. <laughs> of course it did. Of course it did. Yeah. Because, oh, good. All the nice upper class the men are back. Can, can go back to yeah. sitting at home and looking pretty. <laughs> yeah. The men are back. And so the women go back to, you know, thank you for contributing to your country and helping our boys win the war. Right. How many times do you hear phrases like that? Right. Um, so Constantly. back to, 
So the numbers range. Um, I pulled data from Canada, the UK, and the US, and the numbers are all actually very, very similar. So between the three um, nations, 22 to 26% of women um, are employed in 1939, heading into the Second World War. Um, and then I'm switching to UK data just because they just, I don't know, they did a better job collecting this stuff. I think it was honestly a lot of their propaganda at the time was around getting women um, uh participating in the war effort. I think um, probably there was like, I mean, as much as yes, the US was in the war, I, I'm I'm certain it would have, the, the demand just would have been that much greater when you're, you know, dealing with fighting on home soil. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this happened hugely in Canada and the States too, but the numbers are just really impressive in the UK. Any guess, um, women between the ages of 18 and 40, what percentage were working during the second world war? During the second world war? I mean, Pro- probably 50 percent 90 shot 90 percent uh, I mean, that's everyone keep in mind churchill man like he yeah. he uh, this is a totally different podcast for different people but like <laughs> churchill's war propaganda is was magnificent and he got that country got absolutely buy-in. united yeah and he they got big buy-in, big, big buy-in. Um, they had like designers um, making the women's uh, Navy uniforms. I can't remember what they called them. There's like a name. Oh, the Wrens. The Wren uniforms. They're cute. Um, it's fashion. Come do it. Oh, work. yeah. No, no. They <laughs> went from every angle. But anyways, that's a completely different. Karen <laughs> McMahon has a whole podcast series on this. It's fascinating. Anyways. Um, so 90% of able-bodied women between the ages of 18 and 40 were um, employed in some way through national service. Um, just filling in jobs, you name it, they were there doing it. So these are now these are moms. These aren't just people that are single, right? These are this right. Is these everyone. aren't just single women or poor women nope. or women of color. This is everyone. Totally. Yeah, you got it. Um, so interestingly enough, the level of employment would have been higher, but domestic servants were excluded from the figures. So it's not just currently, um, invisible work. It's right. Always been, it's always invisible work. work. Right. Always invisible work. Um, now this isn't an episode on pay equity, but let's just say there was not pay equity for all these women that stepped in and literally did the exact same jobs as their male counterparts, the exact same jobs. Anyways, that's a whole other episode. The government did try to create an equal pay system, but they, you know what it's like. You just find a few little cracks in there and Bob's your uncle. Yeah. Anyways, we'll just leave that sour note there. Pay equity, (laughs) not a thing. Still not a thing. So of course not a thing then. (laughs) Now you'd think after the second round of women really getting in the workplace that maybe those numbers would stick, but I don't know about you, but when I think of the 1950s, I literally think <laughs> of a housewife in an apron having a hot dinner on the table for when her husband came a, home. Like a martini in one hand, an yeah. apron on. Yeah. And right? immaculate house, immaculate hair. Yes. So any guesses in 1953, keep in mind wars like end, but they, the efforts continue for a while. You know, like yeah. the food supply wasn't like, woo, we're right. back. <laughs> 
It's not uh, a switch. No, but yeah. so now we're we're moving to Canadian stats again, which honestly are the same. Like I'm sure a yeah. statistician would maybe argue they're not, but we're like talking percentage points within the yeah. same between the Canada, the US yeah. and the UK. That's the case with a lot of what we see, you know, as much as we Because culturally we're all very similar. Well, in terms cultural, of standards uh, and ideals. Our our in Canada, our number one American import is culture. So <laughs> and we all were colonized by the same people. Um they so in 1953 is when we get our next um labor force participation participation rate, which is what Stats Canada calls it. So what that means is the total labor force expresses a percentage of the population aged 15 and over. So the total amount of women um in, in a percentage age 15 and older that are working. So in 1953, how many women age 15 and older are working? What is your best get, guess? I mean, it's probably back to what it was pre-war-ish, like maybe something like 30%. No, it's exactly back to where it was. Oh <laughs> we, we, we learned oh, Wait nothing. a minute, I sense a theme. <laughs> I got it wrong the first time and then I still got it wrong the second time. So in 1914, 23.6%. In 1939, 22 to 26%. <laughs> and in 1953, we are at 24%. <laughs> nothing. Got it. You got it. Absolutely. They, I mean, this, this, nothing. this leads very nicely into, you know, the, the, the social movements that I'm going to talk about. This gives brilliant context because so unsurprisingly yeah. it's hard to go back once you've had that taste of freedom well this is it right and especially when you look at um a lot of the one of the ways that they got women to work in the states so the, the british used a lot of like very genius propaganda and the sense of urgency was different because they were physically being bombed right. they were so close like just like i mean you can see france from england right like they're so close to the front um that i think the sense of urgency among civilians was was much different but the states needed a bit more buy-in um mm -hmm. And so they actually paid women reasonably well to work in these factories and to get them in mm. those more male dominated areas. They, they use pay. Was it equal to the men? Oh, of course. Sure. Not. It was not. I didn't <laughs> verify that. I don't know if I need to, I mean, but, but they actually did pay. And so, yeah, people, women were used to now making their own money. Mm -hmm. um, but 1953, we're back to 24% women in the workforce. Now, between 1953 and 1990, there's a huge surge of women joining the workforce. And the graph is literally like a line. <laughs> and then it kind of plateaus. But in 1990, we're up to 76% of women age 15 and older are I mean, working. That's a massive, huge, yeah. huge, right? And as much as we like to think there's a big gap between 1953 and 1990, like that's like what, one generation? Right. No, two? I mean, not, yeah. Do you want to call it two? I don't know. Maybe. It's, it's sure. Really for argument's sake. It's like literally between like your grandma and well, my mom was born in 1954. That is yeah. one generation. Yeah. If I'm yeah. using me as the, the definition. And then by 2014, it's 82%. And I think you basically see maybe that line sort of flibbing a little bit back and wiggle waggle forth, a little bit, but, but not much. Um, yeah. 
Yeah. So crazy. Hey, in basically a hundred years, we, the, the, Annika is going to talk about the factors that led to that number increasing and staying, but it, spoiler alert, it wasn't world wars. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I think this is what's so fascinating is the, that those numbers really paint a picture of exactly what was going on. So let's talk a little bit about kind of what that shift from World War II into kind of the civil rights era looked like. Um, This is a time commonly referred to as second wave feminism, first wave feminism being the suffragette movement of the late 1800s and early 1900s. Um, This conversation started in, you know, the late 60s, early 70s, the phrase second wave feminism was used as a way of linking the women's movement of the 60s and 70s to the women's movement of the suffragettes, mostly to show that, you know, these aren't crazy bra burners. This is just an evolution, a new chapter of something that already, you know, you could argue always existed. Um, the and just to back it up for some people who may not know, what was the main driving cause for the suffragettes? Uh, votes. Votes for women. Yeah. Women who owned land. <laughs> yeah, um, getting the the vote. <laughs> yeah. Getting the vote for the select few women that that were considered women. Um, so really relevant to our conversation around labor here, especially in this kind of second wave feminism, is a text by Betty Friedan called The Feminine Mystique. It came out in 1963. Um, and kind of for most you know, historical feminists, this is kind of the beginning of this movement. The feminine mystique calls out what Friedan calls, quote, the problem that has no name, which is essentially systemic sexism that taught women that their place was in the home. And if they were unhappy as housewives, it was their own fault. Says Friedan, I thought there was something wrong with me because I didn't have an orgasm waxing the kitchen floor. (laughs) (laughs) So her ideas aren't necessarily, right? I mean, really, right? Um, her ideas weren't necessarily revolutionary. These things were already being discussed in academic circles, but what was important was the reach of this book. This was no longer just the hallowed halls of academia. This sold 3 million copies in three years in the U S. Wow. And sorry, what year was it released? 63. Okay. Wow. So, I mean, that's a bit, that's a big deal. That's a big number. It's a big deal now. Right. Um, you know, essentially it traveled through whole communities of well-educated middle-class white women maintaining homes and families and told them that it was okay to be mad, that it was okay to want something more. One of the most recognizable slogans from this time is the personal is political. This Hmm. is the idea that individual problems that seem to be maybe even petty about sex, about relationships, access to abortions, domestic labor were actually systemic and political and fundamental to the fight for women's true equality. The second wave cared deeply about this kind of casual systemic sexism that was ingrained everywhere in society. The belief that women's highest purposes were domestic and decorative Mm -hmm. and the social standards that kind of reinforced this belief. Hmm. So Along with this, we kind of see this wave of legal victories. Again, this walks hand in hand with a lot of the rest of the civil rights movement. Um, And I think that 
I'm going to talk about, I mean, as we're talking about statistics and timelines, I think it's really interesting to specifically talk about Canada here because we hear so often about the U.S. Equal Pay Act and Roe v. Wade. These are all kind of things out of this Um, But things flowed a little bit different in Canada. So in 1967, the Federal Royal Commission on the Status of Women was established. And in 1970, the report was tabled in Parliament. This included 167 recommendations on updating the legislature system, including equal pay, maternity leave, daycare, birth control, abortion, family law reform, and revision of the Indian Act. But it wasn't until the 1982 Charter of Rights and Freedoms that Sections 15 and 28 guaranteed equality rights. And in Canada, R.V. Morgenthaler wasn't until 1988. If you're curious or want more context about abortion in Canada, we did a whole episode last summer that I think we're really proud of. And you go back and check it out if you've missed it. Mm hmm. What I think is important to note here is that while the U.S. had legal changes that happened quicker, the changes in Canada were far more sweeping. So the U.S. picked off individual things, you know, that kind of happened one at a time, where in Canada it really it really all came down to the 1982 Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Because hmm. the U.S. still doesn't have maternity leave. Oh, right. wait, there's six weeks. Good Unpaid. Grief. I can't even. Anyway, that's not what we're and talking about. And let's not forget, they also rolled back Roe v. Wade this summer. So, yeah. Um. Anyway, so, you know, some of the issues with second wave feminism, we'll dive into just briefly here. None of this is going to be in surprise. Um, the, the critiques, the, the critiques will not be shocking. This movement was specifically for white middle-class women, women who had to work to support themselves, experienced depression very differently from women who were socially discouraged from working. BIPOC women weren't just fighting for reproductive control, but also freedom from forced sterilization. In Canada, there's a huge tie-up with the Indian Act and kind of what that meant for women um, here. This is also, second wave feminism is also where today's modern TERFs come from. As a reminder, that stands for trans-exclusionary radical feminist. Think J.K. Rowling. Um, this was also the time of what has been dubbed the feminist sex wars, which is a term I fucking hate. But anyway. Well, it's because you always have to make women fight about each other. Right. right. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, yep. it's just tale as old as time. Next. Snooze. Boring. <laughs> tactics are repetitive totally right and i mean this i think starts to illustrate kind of some of the the cracks in here debates among feminists regarding a number of issues broadly relating to sexuality and sexual activity this is like the anti-pornography feminist versus sex positive feminists if you've ever heard the name andrea dworkin she's from this time it carries on kind of as a hallmark of third wave feminism And I don't want to focus on it too much because it's not at the crux of what we're talking about today. But if this is something you want to hear us talk more about, please hit us up on Instagram and tell us because I have a lot more to say on this. (laughs) If if this is something that you get as excited about. You have a university degree (laughs) to say about it. Um. And I kind of want to touch in this, you know, as we're in the 1980s here, um, we get this kind of like very global, like Reagan Thatcher area of conservatism, which managed to do an excellent job of successfully positioning second wave feminists as angry, bra burning, and man hating and lonely. As the second wave kind of started to lose its momentum, this continues to haunt the way we talk about feminism and where this fear of the term feminist comes from, I think. Yeah, you know, all the connotations stem exactly from that. 
Right. This is, I would argue, being afraid of the term feminist is really letting the right-wing oppression of women continue to make us afraid of a straw man argument. But anyway, <laughs> this feminism means you hate men um, also kind of became foundational to the way that the third wave of feminism would position itself as it emerged. We'll touch really briefly on third wave feminism and its slushiness. Um, and I'll also touch on what some are maybe calling the fourth wave of feminism, or maybe it's just more of the third wave, or maybe waves aren't actually relevant anymore. But anyway, <laughs> so I was just going to say, I feel like now, I don't know, <laughs> although maybe you do need waves. I mean, I think the, I to key, say? the key for the second wave feminists was really just this idea that like, th this isn't new, this isn't weird, this isn't, this is just a further continuation of what has always existed. So mm -hmm. Um, the third wave is generally marked starting in 1991 with the Anita Hill case over the background of the kind of riot girl feminist subculture around Seattle. If you want an excellent breakdown of the Anita Hill case, there is an awesome episode of your wrong about podcast that I highly recommend. But in summary, in 1991, attorney Anita Hill testified in the U.S. that Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas had sexually harassed her when he was Ooh, chair. Oh, that name sounds familiar. <laughs> when he was chair of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and she worked as an advisor to him. Mm. Womp womp. Um, the term third wave is credited to Rebecca Walker, who responded to Thomas's appointment to the Supreme Court um, with an article in Ms. Magazine called Becoming the Third Wave. And I'm just going to drop this in the chat if I can figure out where it is in this new Thanks, version. Zoom of for Zoom. updating. We appreciate your daily updates. <laughs> um, and I'll get you to read that, Jenny. Okay. Um, so, okay. So it says, so I write this as a plea to all women, especially women of my generation, let Thomas's confirmation serve to remind you as it did me that the fight is far from over. Let this dismissal of a woman's experience move you to anger, turn that outrage into political power. Do not vote for them unless they work for us. Do not have sex with them. Do not break bread with them. Do not nurture them if they don't prioritize our freedom to control our bodies and our lives. I am not a post-feminist feminist. Post-feminism feminist. I am the third wave. Well, and what I find so interesting about this is, you know, we see this call for like not quote unquote nurturing them if they don't prioritize our freedom to control our lives. But almost 25 years later, here mm -hmm. we are with so many of these same themes. Holy shit. He's been on the Supreme Court for 25 years. Oh, they really need to limit terms. Like no job ever should ever be forever. No one is so good now. at their job that they can do it literally forever. Like fresh eyes, always good. Yeah. Don't, Anyways. don't even, do I have bad news for you about the Canadian Senate? Well, I know. <laughs> So what um, I'm hearing is that Clarence um, really hasn't shifted his stay, his opinions and his him. He's the same. He hasn't changed. It's him. He's the problem. It's him. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I think, again, it highlights how systemic all of these things we're talking about are, right? I mean, it's easy to say, you know, point to legislation. It's easy to point to, you know, 
political, quote unquote, political gains, but we literally still have the same people in positions of power that we like, had. Literally. Like actually the same people. Yeah. <laughs> um, Not conceptually. And, right. Actually. Like physically. <laughs> You know, and I think that this is this is a really important thing because, again, it's easy. I think this is kind of the continuation of like the fear of the term feminist, you know, this like angry man hating Roberting image continues to serve to keep women in their place, continues to serve to reinforce what are traditional kind of gender roles, even in the, you know, window dressing of of quote-unquote equality um and i think we see some of that the third wave is really highlighted by intersectional feminism thank you kimberly crenshaw um you know it's a response to all the things that second wave feminism missed the white-centric nature of its issues the lack of space for trans rights the exclusionary nature of sexual politics you know from riot girl to spice girls a big part of third wave feminism was really heavily focused on choice where it lacks in relation to what we're discussing today is the critical eye that maybe not all choices are created equally. Where second wave mm -hmm. feminists pushed to get women out of the home and into the workforce, third wave feminism tried to move into this middle ground about, you know, you can choose to work inside the home, you can choose to work outside the home, but it's your choice without mm -hmm. ever deconstructing this kind of neoliberal idea that actually now we just have to do everything so you can choose to work outside the home and inside the home or you can just choose to work inside the home is that really a choice like I, I don't know <laughs> and I think that's really where it kind of bottlenecks is that when you have um activists um being activists and you know highlighting issues and whatnot they're going with the things that they feel the most passionate about. And when you have movements or waves, you, and that's why I was like, ah, oh, do we sort of in my head thinking, do we need to keep having waves? I think it's the waves have to have a focal point to be effective, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at big movements that have really brought about change, they're specific, they're like, you have to, you can't just go after a whole society. But women need to have more <laughs> rights. You need to go after the right to vote. You need yeah. to go after equal pay. Like you have to yeah. have a tangible outcome in order to move the needle. But when you're moving the needle, you're moving a needle, not a whole system. And right. I think that that's why it's, and, and I think that's also where maybe I don't identify, um, with the constructs of feminism as I've learned it from those connotations that exist mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. because the some of those specific points don't feel as relevant to me, but the mm -hmm. context surrounding them does, right? Like yeah. uh, equal pay isn't something that um, is relevant to me because I've always worked in a unionized jobs, a right. unionized job, right? right? Like since I, so, so that's not in my wheelhouse, but it's in a lot of people's wheelhouses and it's really important to other people. Um, but my bandwidth is only my bandwidth. Yeah, right? And I think right. this is how we are as humans and we can get so um, demonized, right? And really, mm -hmm. this is where I think- And this polarization, increasing polarization that we see, right? It's Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. You can't say, this is where people don't feel um, safe expressing their feelings on things because you're going to express what your bandwidth is for. And if you are an activist leading a movement, your bandwidth is going to be for this 
in this your, your issue for your issue or, yeah. or the issue that you have decided is the one that's going to move the needle. Right. Yeah. Because you're smart enough to know that you have to pick a tangible. Mm-hmm. It's really a, hard. A hundred percent. This isn't a tangible saying, God, women do everything. We're, well, okay. Define everything. <laughs> right. Right. Like it becomes muddy. It's not. Yeah hey, we need to be paid the same in our workforce. We need to be able to vote. Like these are things that you can have a measured outcome with. It's very hard to have a measured outcome for things that are already invisible, like domestic labor, right? And fluctuate so much person Mm -hmm. to person and household Mm -hmm. to household, even though the theme and the tone of it is the same. Continues to exist. Well, Mm -hmm. and I think kind of along those lines, you know, whether we call what we're in now, fourth wave feminism or- you know, whether we don't call it anything, essentially kind of 2012 and the start of the Me Too movement is really kind of that next demarcation. This fourth wave feminism, which I'm just going to call it that because it's easier. Expands well, because you give it a name. Yeah. <laughs> expands on the intersectionality of third wave feminism, really focusing on rape culture, sexual harassment. Think like the Bill Cosby and Gian Gomeshi trials, right? Mm-hmm. It's really marked by digital media. I think the key difference for what we're talking about today really has to do with his latest movement to call out the patriarchy's damaging impacts on men too, which is something previously that hasn't really been mainstreamed. Things like toxic masculinity. And unfortunately, this is where we see the rise of this kind of men's rights movement. The Jordan Petersons, the Liver Kings, the Andrew Tates, Mm -hmm. it's in response to this. Um, And this is again, kind of to what you were just saying, Jenny, because our focus can only be on so many things at once. The conversation about labor and domestic labor falls by the wayside in the face of toxic masculinity, rape culture, you know, all of these other things that are really, that are still, that are happening now, you know, even as we speak. They get lumped in as first world problems as, and I think that's actually where, uh, as women in, or as humans in society, really, because I don't actually think this particular thing is gendered, but this um, inability to let two things be true, mm-hmm. right? Where it's like, mm-hmm. I can say, holy shit, my mortgage is expensive. And I should be able to say that without someone being like, well, that's a privilege problem. You have a mortgage. It's like, well, right. yes, two things are true. It's a privilege problem and it's still really expensive. Right, right. Right. And I see this, we see this a lot, um, you know, in, in Van, in Vancouver, especially where we live, because mm-hmm. it is such an expensive city that, you know, um, maybe if I'm, I'm doing, I don't know, you're just, there's all sorts of things that we do that we can do out of privilege, but it doesn't mean that they're enjoyable to do. And it doesn't remove that. Like I'm busy taking my kids to sports and driving them all over the place. Yes. That is a privilege problem, but I should still be allowed to sit with the feeling of being tired that I'm driving again, mm-hmm. you know, wherever, or trying to find the library book or find the library book. I think we end up demoralizing each other by sort of saying, Hey, that problem's actually not as big as this other problem. Therefore, you know, you should be putting your effort and your energy into this other bigger, yeah. more significant problem. And when I actually, I mean, more united problems. <laughs> yeah. And I think we'd be more united and actually moving the needle, the figurative, you know, larger systemic needle more if 
we weren't so busy tearing each other apart. Right? Well, it's and almost I think, become a job for people. Uh, well, absolutely. And I think, you know, we've had conversations too. I think this is one of the things that, you know, the quote unquote left political, political left, however you kind of want to look at that, um, really shoots itself in the foot due to its lack of unification and support because it now ends up being, you know, infighting about pronouns, for example, mm-hmm. yeah. rather than, you know, taking down the system that keeps women and trans people at a disadvantage, right? Mm-hmm. It becomes, and, you know, we've talked about this a lot in other episodes on this podcast, it's constantly looking for individual solutions to what is actually a collective or systemic problem. Like you individually, personally need to solve this problem rather than how can we fix the system, which I think is, you know, kind of the through line in what all of these waves of feminism start to look at is how can we shift the system rather than just, you know, me individually making a different choice. Yeah. And how can we, I think so much of um, what women used to do in community better than we do now in a lot of ways is have a hold safe space and have Mm -hmm. that sort of bond and connection. I feel like now with the internet and with social media, we're looking for ways to pick people apart where, and we're looking for um, ways to not be unified. And I think at the core of it, we're actually all a lot more similar than than we would like to, to think. And we're all, a lot of us are experiencing a lot of the same issues and we're actually going to two-part this and talk about our own personal experiences within, um, you know, the systems of invisible work and this conversation. But I think a lot of what is ending up happening is isolating people more because they don't feel like they can even express frustration with the amount of work they're doing because there's so much of that narrative about, well, that's a privileged position to come from. And it's like, well, what does that do? How does that help us as a collective? The answer becomes this commodified, <laughs> you know, commercialized self-care rather than like, oh, you just need to take more time for yourself. You just need to meditate more. You just need to make yourself a priority where that's actually not the, that's not helpful. That's not the solution. <laughs> no. no. Well, and not. I think on that note, like let's, um, let's put a pin in this and then we'll circle back to kind of for next week's episode, we'll, we'll have our own conversation around what this, you know, how this personally shows up because the personal is political. Thanks so much for listening to We really appreciate your support. And if you could do us a big favor and subscribe and share this podcast, it would mean the world to us.